when do I start thinking about what to do with the house? Do I talk to my spouse about it? Do I talk to my lawyer about it? Do you have any like example stories that you can share of a, maybe an ideal way to go about it and one that didn't work out so well? Hey, hey, welcome to the WTF Divorce Podcast. My name is Rob Roseman. On this show, we talk about everything divorce, whether you're thinking about divorce, going through it, or figuring out life after. Divorce, co-parenting, dating, we cover it all and break it into short clips so it's easy for you to find and learn from. If you want more help, head on over to WTFDivorce.com. Thanks for listening. On to today's show. Real quick, let's talk about the sponsor. Today's WTF Divorce episode is brought to you by Soberlink. If you're going through a divorce and custody case involving alcohol, Soberlink is the solution for you. More on Soberlink at the end of the show. Now on to today's episode. Yeah, sure. Well, the idea would be to connect with me uh, during the discovery process. So I do get a lot of phone calls from folks who are thinking about divorce. And one of the first things I think that comes to mind for a lot of people is what am I going to do about housing, right? So especially if you have a dual income or if you're going from one income to now that one income has got to support two households. So it's a, a very large expense, probably the largest expense that people have in their budget. So discovery is good, right? As a CDLP, we try to get involved with the divorce team pre-mediation. So I do a lot of amicable divorce work, and we really try to get involved prior to them going to mediation so they already have an idea about how they can disposition the marital home. So if that doesn't happen, then the next would be to get involved during mediation. So the mediator oftentimes will refer them to me. As soon as they find out there's a home with a mortgage, they say, hey, you really need to connect with Jennifer so she can analyze things and, and help us structure the settlement so that we set you guys up for success post-decree. You don't want to agree to do something in a court order that you can't deliver on. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that's the ideal, right? So we go through the process. We analyze the situation. We ask them what their wants are. Sometimes the, the want is not a reality, and then we have to make some other recommendations. Um, but a lot of times it is, and we help them figure out how to structure it so that it works for the family as a whole. Many times there are young children involved, and usually the children are, the, you know, the, the highest interest. They want to make sure that the kids aren't disrupted. You know, your home is your sanctuary. Um, they don't want them to change schools. They want to maybe try to stay in the same area so co-parenting isn't so um, arduous, right? So um, so we work with them to figure out how to make that happen. Um, unfortunately, there is a lot of misinformation out there in the marketplace. And embarrassingly, oftentimes that misinformation is coming from other mortgage professionals. Mm. Believe that. What's an example of misinformation that somebody might hear from a mortgage broker that would? Well, here's the one that I hear a lot. And I actually had a call with a CDFA today and she had been told the same thing that you've got to be back in the workforce for a specific period of time prior to being eligible for mortgage financing. And that's not true. Hmm. There are obviously a lot of different loan programs that you have, you know, Fannie and Freddie, which are your conventional programs. You've got FHA, VA, USDA, et cetera. 
Um, FHA is the only one that has a set requirement. They require you to be back in the workforce for six months, but conventional, the GSEs, Fannie and Freddie, they're silent on return to work. So their rule is stable and consistent. And they leave it to the underwriter's discretion on what they consider to be stable and consistent. So I'll give you an example. And this is a, a case that I actually got involved in post-decree. And these are the scary ones because they show up with this court order and you're like, oh, oh no, you're going to have to go back to court because we can't make this happen. In this particular situation, we got lucky, but she had been given misinformation. And that's why she came to me because she was, you know, panicking. Um, she had been out of the workforce for nine years. She returned to the workforce with the same company that she had worked for previously in the same position with a base salary. She was told by another lender that they couldn't do anything for her until she had been on the job for six months. And she had 180 days to perform the refinance. Hmm. And we were 30 days in, mm -hmm. right? So, so we're even, we've got less time. Yeah. So the rule is stable and consistent. And how do you present that to an underwriter? Well, the way that we present it to an underwriter is, is, hey, while she may have been out of the workforce for nine years, she's going back to the company that she previously worked for for six years mm -hmm. in the same position, earning a consistent salary. The underwriter said, no problem. We closed the loan in 23 days or something along mm -hmm. those lines. So th that's a situation of she could have gotten bad information, not talked to somebody else about it, not got pointed in my direction and gone to the expense of going back to court. Mm -hmm. So that's a big one. The return to work is huge. Yeah. Let me ask in that case, because I imagine there's a lot of stay-at-home moms, stay-at-home dads that have been out of the workforce. And I know that can be a tricky thing where they're like, oh, I got to go get a job. Are there like guidelines that you give, like take this kind of job, but don't take this kind of job? Absolutely. And yeah. Sure. So basically we're going to have a, a brief conversation about your prior work history and you really need a two year consistent history of employment at some time in the past. It doesn't really mm -hmm. matter how long ago it was. You just have to be able to show that at some point in your life, you consistently worked for two years. Mm-hmm. But what underwriters don't like is variable income. Mm. That's not considered consistent. Variable income would be hourly. That changes from week to week. Variable income would be commission, which obviously changes month to month. Mm. Or bonus income, anything along those lines. Self-employment obviously has its own set of guidelines. So you need a two-year history of that. So, so I do make recommendations and I'll say, hey, listen, this may not be your ideal job. There may be another job that was more appealing to you, but the pay structure was different. So mm -hmm. the, the smart thing to do, the prudent thing would be to take the job. That's going to be the job that you need to qualify for a mortgage. After you close on your mortgage, we don't care what you do. Mm -hmm. As long as you keep making your payment. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Interesting. Yeah. I imagine there are a lot of self-employed people that are getting turned away and that's a, that is a hard thing. So you're saying, even if it's temporary, look into a job that can like, the goal is to get your mortgage done and then you can figure out what you really want to do after that. That's right. Mm -hmm. And I do talk to a lot of self-employed folks. It's usually for whatever reason, stay at home mom who may have been a professional 
prior to having children and they may be doing bookkeeping on the side or, mm -hmm. you, you know, things marketing on the side. They may have these small schedule C businesses that don't really earn enough income on paper to qualify, but they have the skill set to go out and get a job mm -hmm. as a W-2 employee. And those are the folks that I say, you need to go out, find a job, make sure it's salary. Even if it pays less than an hourly gig, take the salary job because that's what we need to qualify you. Jennifer, this was fun. Tell people where they can find you. I love how you told them it's a free call. There's just really no downside to reaching out just to get a second opinion. For sure, you can find me on my website. So it's the World Wide Web dot in like neighborhood loans l-o-a-n-s dot net backslash jennifer and you can find all my contact information there there's links to some videos i've done and some other podcasts and um, some testimonials and all the, all that good stuff so um, i'd love to hear from from the guests out there listening to the podcast and do whatever i can to help them divorce amicably I appreciate you being on and sharing this info. Thanks, Jennifer. You got it, Rob. It comes as no surprise that not all divorces are created equal. While some divorces are collaborative and amicable, others are painful, accusatory, and may simply have you thinking, what the F? If you're co-parenting with an ex-spouse who abuses alcohol, this is a sobering reality. The folks at Soberlink want to help. Soberlink's alcohol monitoring system is the most convenient, reliable, and reasonable way for a parent to provide evidence that they are not drinking during parenting time. The system's real-time alerts, facial recognition, and tamper detection ensure the integrity of each test, so you can be confident that your kids are with a sober parent. With Soberlink, judges rest assured that your child is safe, Attorneys get court admissible evidence of sobriety, and both parents have empowerment and peace of mind. The WTF Divorce Community is here to help shed light on the fact that whatever you're going through, you are not alone. If Soberlink is reaching you at the exact time that you need it, visit www.soberlink.com WTF to sign up and get $50 off your device. That's www dot soberlink dot com slash WTF